Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I am okay. How are you? I'm doing well. Daylight savings kicked in though. And I feel like it was just yesterday I was recording and speaking with you and it's like a beautiful Wednesday evening with the sun outside. And now the fog's rolling in and it's dark and it's like, wow, uh, quite the change quite rapidly. Does it just give you the thirst for freedom, James? <laughs> that was quite the segue there. It's sort of inevitable if you write a post entitled Tech and Liberty. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's almost like painfully cliche, but, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah, it's true. It's true. It's interesting. So we actually talked on the phone earlier this week about this. So it's funny. I feel like I'm talking to you twice. I read this article that I thought was very compelling, and I linked to it in my piece. I opened this article, Tech Liberty, talking about that XKCD comic about the First Amendment. And I was not the first one to do this. We'll put this link in the show notes. This guy named Pat Kerr wrote a great piece on Medium that originally sort of took this tack. I mean, I approach it from a little bit of a different perspective, but the idea was, you know, this comic is a public service announcement, basically saying the point of the first amendment is that the government can't arrest you. That's it. Like, so stop telling us about the first amendment, blah, 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 blah. And it's something that I think we've certainly discussed a lot. It's a point actually that we've kind of made, I think maybe not as clearly and explicitly kind of in passing, oh, the First Amendment doesn't apply to private companies. And then we kind of move on to discussing the questions that may or may not apply. I know it's something that you've certainly dealt with in your day job, being at Cloudflare and whatnot. And this article, I think the one that I linked to sort of made me take a step back and really reconsider the implications of sort of this comic and this sentiment. And what are we saying here? Like when we get up on our soapbox or we shut down conversation, which is actually usually the way that this is used to say that, you know, there is no free speech. Companies can do what they want. They can shut you down. And that's sort of considered the end of the conversation. And it's one of those things where it's like technically true, but is it true in sort of a wider sense, if that makes sense? It totally makes sense. Do you know what's funny is from a foreign perspective, the point you're trying to make is almost easier to understand from overseas. And I unlearned it. So living in Australia, looking at the US First Amendment freedom of speech, the technicality of this only applies to the government. Nobody understood that. You just observe this culture of freedom of speech. There are things that are allowed and the law just reflects that. And it's funny that in our conversations and when it gets pointed out, it's like, the First Amendment, oh, that only applies to the government. And you kind of unlearn it in all these arguments. But when you made the point in your article today, it was just like, oh, of course, like this is what it was like overseas, the perspective of America and the appreciation, the cultural appreciation and importance of freedom of speech. That's right. And that's kind of like I want to sort of unpack at the beginning here because, you know, you speak of being abroad. I mean, obviously, I'm abroad, too. And it's funny, like one of the critiques I got of this article, we're kind of like backing into this, starting with the critiques and working towards the actual article. But it's like, oh, this is such a stereotypically American argument. And it's like, well, yes, uh, yes, in two respects. The respect number one is I was born and raised in America, so I'm going to have an American point of view, even if I'm trying to be sort of objective and take like a, a worldly you know, big picture citizen of the universe sort of approach, it's inevitable that I'm going to have those sort of biases given my background. And that's fine. And I think probably by and large for a lot of Shatekery, the run and a lot of the run of this podcast, I've worked to sort of tamp that down in some respects, try to not be too American about some of this stuff. And I think we had a podcast a few weeks ago, you know, talking about China. I wrote about China and this, the whole thing that was going on about free expression and what's happened with the NBA, what's happened with lots of other companies. And this idea that the sense that we built this bridge to China and we thought we could sort of have our cake and eat it too. We could make a lot of money in China and, oh, by the way, we're just bring along, you know, liberalism and freedom with us. And it turned out that, no, it doesn't work that way. The bridge is a two-way road. And what has actually happened is, you know, authoritarianism and sort of censorship is being exported from China to the West. And one of the points I made in that podcast, I think with you was, you know, I've avoided sort of being overly political, but I think this is a place to sort of draw the line Hmm. where, you know, there's just two different ways of viewing the world here. And the fact is, I'm an American. I am from the West. I do think that these sort of values are important. And given that, I said that should change the way that companies operated. And I think it's changed the way that I've been operating, the way that I think about it. And that was sort of the big picture context of this is like, Yeah, it's super cliche to write a post called Tech and Liberty, but 
actually maybe cliches are a little bit more important, particularly at this moment in time than I might've thought previously. Right. So two things, first of all, it is obviously political, but I think there's scope. And I think during this conversation that will happen, this is just as much about principles first than it is outright politics. Right, right. It'll we have avoided and will continue to avoid partisanship, which I think is, is sort of like a level below the political, if that makes sense. Right. And I think the second thing is we haven't actually mentioned what prompted you to write this on the podcast yet, which is this question of how these tech platforms deal with political advertising and Twitter came out during the week and said they were going to ban it. And obviously, Mark Zuckerberg copped a lot of grief while giving congressional testimony around Facebook's approach to that, which is to basically allow political advertising and not censor it. And we'll get into that. But the interesting thing is, I actually prefer this approach to this topic, whereas if we define it just to the US, it becomes much more about the politics. It becomes even much more about the partisan around, are you going to allow this lie? This is a lie. What's a lie? Actually, and zooming out and making it more about the principles. And I think the framing of coming in on this, on one hand, you have the US with its cultural approach to freedom of speech. And the other hand, you have China and it's rising as a world power, but a very different approach to freedom of speech. And I think actually dealing with it, coming at it from that lens, we naturally will talk more about the principles. And I think that gets us to a better place to have a conversation about how we want to approach the principles and why the principles are important. And then we can get to the expression of the principles, which is the more political, like, okay, what do we actually do about this specific issue? Does that make sense? You know, it absolutely does. And I think that's the approach that I took in the article this week. Yes. It was an article about technically speaking about sort of the, this ad question. But I think I got to the ad question about 1800 words into the article. And I think you're exactly right. It's a super fraught question. We are going to get to it in this podcast. We'll get it towards the end. And just a headline here, and this is one of the more, the frustration with approaching it the way that I did is that people started reading it with a thought in mind about what it was going to be about. And then they like, I immediately got the responses like, you know, oh, you're just, you know, being an absolutist or defending Facebook, blah, blah, blah. And like multiple times, this happened on Twitter at least like three or four times. Someone would tweet something and I'd be like, did you finish reading the article? And they'd be like, not yet. I'm like, well, how about you finish? <laughs> and, and like, we are not giving Facebook a pass here. Like there are specific things that I think both of us think they're doing wrong. We're going to get into those things. I think it's a good thing to add up top that we're going to talk about something at the top that I think is important, but we're not talking about Facebook right now. We will get to Facebook. When we get to Facebook, give us the sort of grace to view a very complex gray situation with the ability to see gray and we can sort of start black and white and then let's leave Facebook out of it completely. Yeah. I, I think that's the right way to go at it. So that out of the way, I'm still, <laughs> I'm still amused at myself that I wrote an article called tech and Liberty, but you know, this aspect, this idea of, we talked about in the last podcast that freedom of expression is not just about sort of policy, right? It's also about structure. That was the point we made in the last podcast and in a point I've been making on Chichekri. And one of the concerns we had around Facebook, I said we want to talk about Facebook, but oops, forgive me for one moment, is that it's great that they're taking this sort of policy approach, but the structure of the company is not one that lends towards sort of freedom, right? Because the whole point of the way the constitution is put together and, you know, talked about some of the Federalist papers and what the argument was, is that the fear was of tyranny. And the idea being that an unaccountable ruler without any sort of checks and balances, like it doesn't matter if you have laws around freedom, if you don't have the structure that supports freedom. And the thing that occurred to me while thinking about this is that there's a third piece too. like, that's right. You need the law, the law in this case being the first amendment, you need the structure, which we will get back to in a moment, because again, Facebook is no sort of like saint in this sort of affair, but there's also the cultural aspect and the idea that what are sort of the societal defaults? What are the things that we operate on a day-to-day basis with the assumption is true? And this is where I think this cartoon is wrong. And this thought that the first amendment is not Nothing but a law is wrong. And what's interesting is I sort of went back to when the Bill of Rights was put together and the first time it was put together. And this cartoon, this specific mindset that freedom is a function of law was actually the reason why it's an amendment and not part of the Constitution, right? The whole idea of the First Amendment being added to the Constitution. 
Constitution later. It's like, well, why wasn't it in the original? It's like, well, it wasn't in the original because the fear was that by writing it down and putting it in words, it would make people think that rights were a function of law and that if the rights weren't specifically enumerated in the law, that they didn't exist. And the feeling that is like, well, of course people have freedom. The whole point of sort of our republic here is that we threw off a tyrannical ruler. Yes, England needed a bill of rights because they were carving out rights from the king's sort of absolute rule. But us, we are of independent states. We are free people. And like, I know you've been waiting to make sort of like a bald eagle joke, which I just blatantly stole from you. But like, this was specifically what Alexander Hamilton wrote in when the Federalist Papers, he's like, freedoms are secured by the opening of the Constitution, which is we, the people of the United States, secure the blessing of liberty to ourselves and our posterity to ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. And this point was, that's enough. Like, freedoms exist. The only thing we're doing here is putting in some structure, and we actually shouldn't specify that rights are granted because that implies that the government has the ability to grant rights when that's actually the exact opposite of this entire endeavor. Right. I guess. I'm sorry for stealing your Bob Eagle joke. Oh, no, no, no. Totally. Okay. (laughs) So that history is really important. And it's helpful for me to understand because like, again, I didn't grow up inside the States. And so I feel like you learn this in high school and in college and I didn't get that. So this history is really helpful. But I think there's a wide dash. It's like, why is this important? And like, how has this affected where the United States is today? And how do you think about why it's important relative to a very different approach with China, right? Well, the reason why it's important. And, you know, let's be clear. I'm not trying to turn into some sort of like the Founding Fathers podcast. Like, obviously, the Constitution Mm. was deeply fundamentally flawed. It had slavery sort of built into it. Mm. Like, it's a little rich to talk about freedom in the context of a document that was, you know, freedom for white males, property owners, and basically nobody else. So, absolutely making that clear acknowledgement. And it's an important thing to keep in mind. But to answer your question, the reason why it matters is there's sort of two different ways to look at this. One is that freedom comes from laws. And two is that sort of freedom is the default state of affairs. And the reason why I think it matters is it's just a fundamental difference between sort of a culture of asking for permission and a culture of sort of asking for forgiveness, for lack of a better term. You know, there are pluses and minuses to both. I'm not going to be out here and be some sort of like U.S. absolutist. This is the best way to do things like there's massive flaws. Well, again, you start with slavery. You look at gun crimes. You can look at just the horrific state of the way. There's lots of horrifying things about the U.S. So this is not a argument that U.S. rah-rah or China bad-bad or whatever it might be. Like, there are trade-offs in all directions, and so please don't take it that way. But the question is, which culture is better? What sort of approach is better when it comes to driving sort of long-run innovation, doing new things. Like the fact of the matter is the wonderful thing about technology, again, and we've done lots and lots of podcasts about the unintended downsides and all that sort of stuff. So give us some grace here. But the wonderful thing about technology is it's the one thing where we can sort of have our cake and eat it too. Like we can actually grow the pie. We can do things more productively such that there's more resources and more things available for more people. And we can raise the tide for everyone. It's the the only way to do it. Like anything that's sort of redistributing or moving stuff around, that's not saying that we shouldn't have redistributive efforts or we shouldn't do things to move things around. And again, we've talked about this sort of stuff on our podcast, but at the end of the day, the one thing we can do that sort of increases things for everyone is technology. And this is technology writ broadly, not just saying like Silicon Valley technology or high tech, like the wheel is technology, right? Like there's all sorts of the broadest definition of technology and technology is, It is a uniquely sort of human endeavor that we accumulate knowledge, we come up with ideas, we bring them to market or show them to our friends and family or use them as an advantage against the tribe that we're warring next door back in the day. And it makes the world better. And it makes the world better for everyone, particularly, you know, the more that you zoom out. And my belief, and maybe this is just a belief and I don't have proof around it, although I think there probably is proof around it, is that a culture of presumed freedom with restrictions after the fact is better for producing that sort of innovation than a culture of permission where what you can do is defined by someone above you. I love that framing. In fact, it's one of the things that was 
underlying what you wrote this week, but only explicitly came out just then, which is the so what. And I love it for a variety of reasons. I can tell you having worked in environments, so just taking the micro example, having worked in environments, including environments in Silicon Valley and overseas, where you are working in a place where you have that presumed freedom versus a place where you have to do everything with the view of getting something past somebody else. It sounds like a simple thing, like do the best thing or do the thing that's going to get approved. It sounds like, oh, but you're just going to do the best thing and then it's going to get approved. But that's never the way it works. Like, especially if that decision maker is someone that will get upset or there will be ramifications for you if you do something to break the rules. You start to self-censor. The quality of the work is never as good. And when you talk about the so what in terms of like, that's just one example. That's an example of me operating inside of an organization. That's a micro example, but you multiply that by hundreds of millions or billions of people. And the fact that like the innovations that take root, they're hard to get. And a few of them will work like that ends up having a really, really big impact. And you want people thinking like that. It reminds me of that Steve Jobs quote. It's like, well, the way things are is everyone assumes it's because they're the best way, but no, it's just because that's the way that work the best and you can come along and you can challenge it. And having people think that you need to ask for permission before you challenge it, you're much less likely to get that assumption challenged as often as if people are just free to go and do it. The second thing though is, I guess, that characterization resonates for me, and I'm sure it'll resonate for many of our listeners. But if I was to characterize what you just said, it's almost a utilitarian argument. And there's another argument, which is like, what's the type of place we actually want to live in? And again, not to pull on too many quotes, but it reminds me of Winston Churchill during World War II. People were requesting to cut funding for the arts. And Churchill's response was like, yeah, and if we don't have art, what's the reason for living? Like you hear about people like Ai Weiwei, the famous Chinese artist who's a dissident, who's living overseas now. Like, this is the whole reason for being. This is why there's so much that I love and admire and am interested about in China, but I'm personally afraid to go over there because I want to be able to have conversations like this with you. This is the thing that gives life meaning, and I'm afraid to actually have that type of conversation living in China. Yeah, I appreciate you sort of drawing that point out from me. It was one that I tried to make in the article. Like I sort of alluded to the idea of, you know, Silicon Valley, where one thing that makes it great is the permission to fail. And, you know, no one's saying it was invented there or that it's excluded there, but it is, I think, pretty unique. The fact that in many respects, you can be rewarded for failing, right? If you started a company and failed, you are in many respects, some sort of career perspective, better placed to do sort of the next big thing than you are if you sort of like were a good worker bee for a company for many years. And you certainly see that from an investment perspective. If you are a venture capitalist that has no failures, you are a failed venture capitalist because sort of by definition, you're not taking the sort of risk that will drive the level of returns that are sort of necessary. And it's certainly funny when it goes wrong and people make jokes. We've been hearing Juicero jokes for years. We're going to hear we work jokes for decades, and that's fine, deservedly so. But there is an aspect that remains so essential. It remains essential to why is it that so many innovations and so many new companies for literally decades now, like we're talking 50 years, 50 years of the venture-driven ecosystem of unimaginable wealth creation. And I mean wealth creation, not just in the context of a lot of people got rich, that absolutely happened, but in the context of a lot of people's lives got better all over the world, like a very pure manifestation of technology is you can't look at something like the transistor or the chip. I mean, the transistor invented in New Jersey, but like the chip and the PC and all the things that came up around the internet, all all these companies and the smartphone and say that like mankind as a whole is not significantly richer in a better place than they used to be. They are. And what is it that makes us unique? Like so many places want to be the next Silicon Valley. They want to say, Oh, let's mimic that. And they want to get the playbook and they want to say, Oh, we do this, 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 and then we'll be Silicon Valley. And what's so funny about that is sort of the desire to find the playbook and to mimic it is you're already down the path of being the exact opposite of what makes Silicon Valley successful because you're looking for permission. You're looking for a rule book. You're looking for someone to tell you what to do. And the entire reason why it works is the rejection of people telling you what to do. 
Yeah. The Don Valentine quote from Sequoia that you put in the article this week, I think just does a beautiful job of capturing it. The world of technology thrives best when individuals are left alone to be different, creative, and disobedient. The other thing that's coming to mind listening to you speak, and it's harkening back to other conversations, is there's a direct relationship between the floor and the ceiling. And if you don't have the floor set super low for failures and for people to go out there and be wild, then you don't get the same ceiling Like you come up with wild and crazy ideas, like the fact of the matter remains, some of them aren't going to work. And yeah, it is fun to call it out, but nobody's laughing about Apple or Google or Facebook or all these other companies that got started over here that have literally changed the way that everyone on the planet live. It's just a necessary part of it. You know, it's actually a very, it's a point to make on a sort of a fine point. You know, the reason why Masayoshi's son is the CEO of SoftBank and sort of the engineer of this whole WeWork debacle, if you want to understand the way that sort of investing works in technology. The reason why he is still considered very successful is by literally like his companies wrote off billions of dollars this past week, well into the sort of 11 digits for WeWork, maybe going down the tubes, we'll see what happens, is because he also invested in Alibaba. And the thing is, when you invest, your downside is capped. Whatever money you put in, if it all goes to zero, that money is gone, right? But the upside, the upside is uncapped. It's effectively unlimited. And that's the reason why this works. And the reason why, by definition, something that has sort of unlimited upside that actually achieves that upside is going to be very, very difficult to define and discover because otherwise people would do it, right? If it was trivial to build these companies, if it was trivial to build a successful company, then lots of people would have already done it and they'd be competed, the value of them would be competed to zero. And why does it not happen? Because it's not trivial. It's actually really, really hard. And in the case of something like Alibaba, you know, certainly there was a time, and this is, you know, maybe to be a little more gentle on the folks that have done a 180 on China, like me, there was a time where China really was opening up, particularly from an economic perspective, and was allowing these sort of initiatives to sort of take root. And it turned out extremely well, like freedom works. Like China is one of the best examples that freedom does work. In this case, mostly limited to economic freedom, but it works. It works really, really well. And we need sort of more of that, not less. Right. Which I think is a pretty nice transition back to the topic at hand. Like in the same way you need the ceiling low to get the floor high, I think with that as context, I think it's easier to almost see it in the utilitarian and in the context of tech, but bringing that back to its essence and back in the United States in the context of freedom of speech and the ability to be able to freely express these ideas and for it not to be a question of asking for permission. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, this is where I wanted to get a bit more into the history of the First Amendment because a lot of people, when they argue in favor of free expression in the First Amendment, they use this sort of marketplace of ideas, you know, mm. approach. And, you know, it's like, oh, you know, let the best idea win, the best answer to bad speech is good speech or whatever it might be. And the fact of the matter is, is that. One, it's a very difficult argument to make when you're dealing with sort of like a blatant lie. And the way these debates always go down is that you find the most sort of egregious example and then you argue about that egregious example and just sort of skate over the fact that actually 98 or 99% of the things that are going to come up under these sort of issues are going to be super gray. It's going to be unclear who's right, who's wrong. We see this in fact checking now, right? Like, yeah, sometimes there are blatant lies, but the vast majority of the time there are interpretations that are favorable in one direction or the other or assumptions understating something. It's like, well, I say I'm going to provide this for everyone. It's like, well, what are your assumptions? And actually your assumptions are false or your assumptions are right. And you get so deep in the details very, very quickly that you realize these issues are actually incredibly complex. And when there are complex ideas, certainly having a marketplace of ideas is a good idea. But if you sort of zoom out, it's still kind of an unsatisfying argument when it comes to the idea of, look, there's a blatant lie. Like, shouldn't we get rid of it? What's interesting, though, is that actually was not the driving idea behind putting the First Amendment in place. Like the idea of the marketplace of ideas, I think, was really a creation of John Stuart Mill, who wrote in the 1800s, and it didn't enter the U.S. constitutional lexicon until the early 1900s. And I put that case in there. Oliver Wendell Holmes' dissent was the first time that the idea of 
the reason we have the First Amendment is because we want to have a marketplace of ideas. That was a creation of the 20th century. Like that was not the actual reason why the First Amendment was put in place. The reason why the First Amendment was put in place, as we discussed, was as a shield against tyranny. The point of people pushing back against Hamilton's argument that, oh, no, we already have all the freedoms. Why do we even want to create the assumption that a government can have freedoms? It was like, look, we're creating a central government. The nature of governments are that they're going to try to take more and more power. And yes, we want to put in place that all the powers are reserved. And that's why the Ninth Amendment exists, which is like all the rights not listed here are also reserved for the people. And the Tenth Amendment was like any powers not granted to the central government are reserved for the states. But there's actually a good example of where the anti-federalists had a point. Like the 10th Amendment is basically meaningless as far as U.S. constitutional law is concerned because the federal government has used the Commerce Clause to sort of like take over in lots and lots of places where the founders would not have had them take power. And so this idea that actually the nature of government, it's not sort of like a good thing or a bad thing, just the nature of government is to sort of take more and more power over time. And so the idea was, look, we should put some of this stuff down in writing to make sure that even if government grows over the very long run, we will still have these rights secured. Right. And, you know, there was that quote from Thomas Jefferson. Half a loaf of bread is better than none. Yeah, that's right. Like, we can't secure all rights. Let's at least make sure we get the big ones, right? And it's funny because you go back to, like, that comic. Like, that comic is a perfect example of what Thomas Jefferson was writing about, right? It's like, we've reduced everything to, well, actually, only the government can't arrest you, but I wish they could. You know, like, there's a real sentiment that, like, more power. But the reason why it's useful to think about that is if you start with the idea that you had a culture of freedom and the sense of the culture of freedom was, like, you start with freedom and then you add in sort of the structures after that. And if you go back, like, well, what was the fear? The fear is that something will come in over the top and restrict that. So we need to resist tyranny. We need to resist something sort of over the top. And if you start from that perspective, you tie those two things together, that one, we want a culture of freedom. And two, if we want a culture of freedom, what we need to be fearful of is something over the top coming in and restricting that. Then it sort of gives a very obvious answer to should Facebook be deciding what is true and what is not true. And we're talking about a large, unaccountable entity deciding with political speech. Again, the whole thing with speech is it's very easy to reduce this to absolutes. The Supreme Court, there's an entire jurisprudence about different levels of speech, right? Like commercial speech is not very protected. We can actually get into that in a little bit. Day-to-day speech, there's objectionable speech or obscene speech. There's a very different levels of it. The absolute highest level that is basically it's almost impossible to write any sort of law that can infringe on this in any sort of way is political speech. That is most concerned about you don't want to have any sort of restrictions there because you're getting into the very nature of sort of like self-government and what it entails. And that's like, do we want Facebook making decisions about that? Like, it seems quite obvious to me, the answer should be no. Or to reframe it, like in the language that you used earlier of like, I'm just good to say this, or if this becomes the main platform by which I reach people, is this a ask for permission or beg for forgiveness type approach? Like, do you really want the politicians, if this is the way in which people who are running for office reach everybody, do you really want them thinking, oh, is this something that Facebook's going to allow or not? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I feel a little bit of consternation that there's a sense that, boy, it sure would be nice if the U.S. government would control people's speech. But given that they can't, let's get Facebook to do it. And, you know, we'll again (laughs) keep hinting towards stuff we're going to get to. Like, I wish that power didn't exist at all, but I absolutely push back against the idea that anyone should be doing this sort of power. Like, do we want the Trump administration deciding what's true or not true? No, of course not. And thanks to the First Amendment, that will never sort of be the case. But like, how far is the line from we don't want the president deciding what people should or should not say to we don't want a tech executive in Silicon Valley deciding what people do or do not say? And I mean, the question that then comes to mind for me is like, do they not agree with the principle of the First Amendment in the first place? The frustration, it we're going to tolerate that exists or we like the idea behind it. And if people are just going to tolerate the idea that exists, I wish they'd be honest and say, we shouldn't have this and we should be challenging this whole culture of freedom of expression. And like one example where this happened was when, and again, words I never thought I would be saying, but watching Mark Zuckerberg's testament 
attorney on Capitol Hill. It's so frustrating watching him getting grilled by AOC, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I think I've pronounced that correctly, although forgive me because my Spanish is not my strong suit. But basically pointing out like, is this a lie? Are you going to run it? And Zuckerberg definitely flailed in his answering of that. It frustrated me because if I was counseling him, it's like, you know what, representative, like, I don't like the fact that these lies are running any more than you do. The problem is not when it's obviously a lie. The problem is where do I then draw the line between what's a lie and what's a not? And I'd really love your guidance on where to do this because, again, like somewhere along the spectrum of this speech, there's obviously a line where it's a lie and it's not. And maybe this instance, like everybody's admitting it's a lie. Sure, great. But if I start drawing the line here, where is the point where I get off the bus and say, okay, this is okay and this is not? And do I want that power? I don't think I do. But how about you take that power instead? What was actually very interesting about that exchange that you're referring to between Ocasio-Cortez and Zuckerberg is that she was, I think, referring to the question of if there was information on Facebook that said the wrong thing about what the election was like, oh, the election is actually on Wednesday, right? Basically working to suppress the vote by telling lies about the election or putting false information about where polling places are or or that you need like a passport to vote, you know, all which are tools to sort of suppress the vote. And what's interesting is that Facebook does actually take those down. Obviously, stuff gets through because there's millions of ads a day or whatever. And Facebook's policy is that they will take those down. And what's interesting about that, and I think her point was, if you'll take those down, why won't you take this other stuff down? And on one, it's very easy. Well, yeah, that's a great question. On the other hand, you know, and I think Zuckerberg really (laughs) flubbed the answer here, but I think, you know, we can sort of dig into it because I think it gets into an important point is none of this stuff is black and white, right? Like the idea of principles is you're going to have more than one of them. And sometimes they're going to be in conflict. And the question is, what's the priority order of those principles? And you have to think really deeply and carefully about that because when they come in conflict, one of your principles is going to be violated. You have to choose a different principle. At the end of the day, any of us can only ever be consistent to one principle because by definition, that second principle in the long arc of time, if we live forever, it's going to come in conflict with the first principle and we're going to have to choose it. Right. And so, In part, this is why the whole pointing out hypocrisies or whatever is very frustrating. What we're talking about is trade-offs. Like sometimes you have to violate your second principle because the first principle is more important. And the choice that Facebook has made, again, this is not to defend their choices. We're going to get into Facebook specifically in a moment. But the choice Facebook made in this particular case is that we believe that given the principle of like we want to enable sort of self-government and political speech. Number one is people need to be able to vote. And so we're going to restrict voter suppression. Number two, politicians need to be able to speak freely. So we're not going to restrict that. And their priority order has put the voter suppression one above the politician one. So they will censor politicians on specific points like voter suppression posts. What they won't do is basically anything else. And Again, it's trivial to sit here and poke holes and say, look how inconsistent you are. It's like, well, yes, you're inconsistent. That's the point of having a priority stack of your principles. Yeah, that's the framing. That's the whole point. Like until you get out of the conversation about the specifics, because you just don't get at the underlying principle. And when we were talking about it earlier this week, and you mentioned the specifics of, okay, this kind of thing already happens in terms of paid speech going out to people. And it's happened historically for some time. And what people would do is they buy all the roles, they get all the data, and then they buy personalized mailing and send it out in USPS. And clearly you don't want the USPS opening up all the letters. And to be clear, like super abhorrent stuff. Like one of the, I think, famous stories around this is in the two. 2000 primary, Republican primary, it was John McCain versus George W. Bush. And there was a mailing of unknown province sent to Southern Carolina voters, heart of the deep South, that John McCain has a daughter of African-American descent that is adopted. And the insinuation was that actually, no, he has an African-American mistress and this is his daughter. And, you know, again, given the, the area of the country we're dealing with, you can imagine how 
you know, explosive mm. that could be like truly, truly vile stuff. I mean, we're talking about a guy that, you know, weave aside the politics of any of these folks, like adopted someone, brought her up as his daughter. And people are now trying to leverage that as a political liability by appealing to the worst impulses of humanity. Like, Awful, awful, awful stuff. And this was, by the way, four years before Facebook was even invented. (laughs) Right. Completely agree. And this was your point. Doesn't mean we want the USPS opening up all the mail and checking to see whether something's okay or not. Yeah. What we want to know is we want people to know this story, right? To look at it and see how terrible it is. It should have been a big negative for the Bush campaign, not any sort of positive. Again, no one knows where it came from. I'm not saying it came from the Bush campaign. But again, this is one example of many. This whole direct mail thing, it's like politics at its most nasty. And it's been around for a while. And it has all the data. You know, there's a we'll put a link in the show notes to uh, New York Times Magazine article in 2004 that's going on and on about how campaigns are using data. And the manifestation of this was with direct mail. But yeah, to your point, no one at the time was saying, you know, we should have censors placed in the post office. Right. There was a line in your article this week where you quote Justice Kennedy or a couple of lines, and I just love them. Uh, It speaks exactly to this. Only a weak society needs government protection or intervention before it pursues its resolve to preserve the truth. Truth needs neither handcuffs nor a badge for its vindication. And that's exactly what you're talking about. You don't want the government going in there and opening the letters. Like, again, like you said, folks like us are like, oh my God, can you believe this happened? Now, coming back to your earlier point, though, about principles, there are are instances where perhaps you do, like you gave one earlier about voter suppression and that touching on freedom of speech versus allowing politicians to outright lie or someone buying ads. There are other examples where you get at this and you get at this argument about principles. And one of the things that the founding fathers were very concerned about for obvious reasons was foreign influence. And there are lots of laws governing whether foreign actors are able to participate in US elections, whether it's buying ads or giving things of value, so on and so forth. And it's like, again, All of what Justice Kennedy was talking about holds true. At the same time, it gets at this point of principles and it looks like foreign interference is a principle that we place above freedom of speech such that it's American people speaking about American ideas and and having a debate with other Americans as opposed to folks on the outside that may have other vested interests injecting themselves into the debate. Yeah, it's a really good point. And this is where we're kind of like pushing back. Like we want to start big picture with sort of a black and white view of like, you know, Yay, freedom, the bald eagle point of view, as I think you like to frame it. (laughs) Yeah, I love how you Yeah, I know. Honestly, not on purpose. It's just like you have a good way of framing it. (laughs) (laughs) But the reason to start there without talking about Facebook is because, no, we don't want Facebook to be black and white. Because the fact of the matter is there is tons of things in tension here. And like there is some stuff that Facebook does that's really good. Like, for example, Facebook now makes all ads publicly available and searchable. And actually, if you go to a candidate page, you can do like more information and you can get to it. In my opinion, it should be even clearer. And by the way, this is a change for Facebook. And it's a change that is a positive one that I think came from Facebook having to reevaluate its priority stack. Facebook used to not make this transparent. used to be able to advertise on Facebook and target people. And there was no way for anyone to see those ads except for the people who were targeted. And the argument was, well, yeah, because for advertisers, that's competitive information, you know, who they know to target and people could go in and look at them and figure out their strategy. And that wouldn't be fair to our advertisers, blah, 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 blah. And a lot of people, including me, longtime readers of Checker will know that I banged this drum for quite a while is that no, it doesn't matter. Your priority stack is wrong. Yes, I get the point that there is competitive information there, but the downside of a lack of transparency is far too great. You need to reorder your priority stack. And in this case, Facebook did to their credit, again, to their discredit that they did originally, but to their credit that they adjusted later on. And now all ads are transparent. And in some respects, Facebook is actually, we're in a better spot relative to direct mail because imagine if, you know, all those direct mails, like there have been millions of direct mailings over the decades that were abhorrent that no one actually knew about because they all went to certain houses or they went to certain people. And usually you would find out with the truly bad ones if they messed up, but they sent it to someone that sort of publicizes it. But in the case of Facebook, it's out there. And actually you've seen this work to Facebook's detriment from a PR perspective. There is basically an article every month or two months where someone dig into that archive, they find some 
advertisement. That's a problem. And then they say, oh, look at this terrible advertisement that was run on Facebook. It's like, one, it's bad that that existed, but this is the system working sort of as it yeah. should. And you know, we saw this with ProPublica exposing, for example, the housing discrimination that was happening on Facebook. Again, a very sort of Pollyannish view of the world where Facebook put in all these things. You can target by demographics and blah, 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 and not thinking through the bad consequences. Well, what's going to happen is you're going to have some landlords that are going to only target white people and run housing ads to them and effectively discriminate. And actually, buying housing ads goes through an entirely different system now where all that stuff sort of cut out. Why did that come? Why did that system develop? It wasn't developed in this case because Facebook was all-knowing. It was developed because there was transparency and enterprising reporters from ProPublica could go in and discover this injustice, could expose it, and bring pressure to bear that it be fixed. That is a free society working, right? Mm -hmm. And free societies thrive on transparency. And so in this respect, Facebook is actually in some respects, a better situation than what we had before because things are actually more transparent. And it's a good example of what drives change, how change can occur, and what should be sort of our goal for this sort of stuff moving in different directions. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that example is a pretty good example where you've got a pretty good rationale for carving out how to do things and do them differently. And now there's a completely different process for how those types of ads occur. And I think credit, and there are a couple of other examples. And I think we would agree that rather than take the approach that Twitter's taken of just outright banning political speech or outright banning ads relating to political speech, that actually creating a different process or particularly blunting some of the targeting tools so you can't do these, the equivalent of the individual mailers, really feels like a good way of getting this right. Like You don't want a company deciding what's okay and what's not. And yes, it's easy to score points on Capitol Hill around this, but they, they have so much power and they start to put their finger on the scales or they start deciding what's okay and what's not. That feels no better than the US government making that decision, to be honest. But actually blunting some of the targeting ability that's been so finely honed and that is devastatingly effective, that feels like it actually might be a pretty good compromise in terms of navigating this whole thing. Yeah, and I think there's an important point to make here. From a sort of constitutional perspective, there is no difference between paid speech and sort of organic speech. Like, that's actually a pretty fundamental principle here. But the reason why I think the distinction does matter in the case of Facebook is that – I actually think I wasn't clear about this in my article – is – there's an aspect of what you choose to see versus what you're forced to see. And the whole point of advertisements and why they're different from sort of organic things is like, if you don't follow a particular politician's Facebook page, you're likely not going to see what they posted. I mean, you might, if like one of your friends shares it with you, but in that case, that's sort of on your friends, your friends sort of responsibility. And no one wants to regulate what your friends share or don't share. Which I, I certainly hope not. But the difference with advertisements is you are, forced to see something that you necessarily may not want to see or that you decide to see. And I think that that is an important distinction because like the viewer has rights as well. The citizen has rights as well. And this is where sort of the reduction of friction point comes in, where the fact that it is possible to finally tune a message to 20 people. There is a minimum size for Facebook ads. That's somewhere around that number. The reason it's not one is because then you could identify what a person is. So there's always been a limit, but it's relatively low. And the concern with that is one, there's some aspect of your forcing a message in front of someone else. Like rights go both ways, right? There's a right to speak. There's not necessarily a right to be heard. And that's mm. sort of pushing into sort of the right to be heard sort of angle. The other point is it's great. We have transparency in all these ads, but where is the transparency sort of most important? It's sort of most important in sort of the shared space under that politician. So you have a politician running for a house seat in, say, Madison, Wisconsin, right? Where we need the transparency, where that debate is happening, is happening in Madison. And so the, like, the more people in that area that see it and can have sort of a debate about the topic, that's actually fulfilling the idea of political speech and the idea that there should be a give and take. And in some respects, by severely limiting who can see what you say, it's a perversion of the idea of what we're trying to protect in the first place. Right. That totally makes sense. And I mean, you can already see issues with 
how both of Facebook and Twitter, it's interesting, like people are already trying to start to pull it apart. From the Twitter side, there was an interesting, I mean, it got picked up by Senator Warren, but there's an interesting article around like, okay, Exxon runs a whole bunch of issue. I mean, it's basically issue stuff, but it relates to innovations that they have. They've not really brought to market, but it's a form of, it's a form of corporate branding. Yeah. Brand marketing, corporate branding. It's also kind of like you're touching on political stuff. You're touching on climate change. You're touching on, we're a great corporate citizen. You don't want to regulate us, et cetera, et cetera. Like, is that going to get banned or not? And right now it doesn't look like it is, but there's a lot of discussion around whether it should be. At the other end of the spectrum, you had Facebook saying, okay, we're going to treat political advertising differently. And you had some, I don't want to call him a joker because like on some level, I appreciate his sentiment of like what we were talking about, like pushing the boundaries. He registered for the California gubernatorial race And he's like, okay, I'm now a politician. You don't get to regulate any of my speech. I think he let on a little too much to the world that the main reason he was doing this, though, was so he could get around the rules. And Facebook said no. But it's like, yes, it's really, really hard to do this. And I'm not sure that we want companies having to figure it out. It's better just to, again, like kind of keep your hands off it as opposed to like you definitely don't want them leaning in and putting their fingers all over it. No, it's a good point. And I think all these companies could do a lot more to protect listeners as opposed to broadcasters. Like, I think Twitter is a massive failure in this regard. I think we've talked about this previously. Twitter has tried to sort of like stamp out bad actors or figure out ways to suspend or whatever people that are being abusive. And there's always the examples going back and forth of like, I reported this as being a problem. Twitter said it wasn't a problem and blah, blah, blah. And you're getting in the mire of rules and finding the exceptions and people working around it. And the bigger issue is that if someone is on Twitter in broadcasting to no one and I don't see it, that's fine. That's great. I don't care. Like, I don't need to see what they say. And Twitter, I think, has failed to create good tools for people to only see what they want to see and to protect themselves. And I think that's just been a fundamental failure of the platform for a long time. In part, Twitter, like, really values, oh, it's a broadcast. Anyone can talk to anyone. You know, I can reach out to some random student at Harvard named James Allworth and talk to him on Twitter, or I can reach out to a CEO or a VC and tweet whatever I want. I can tweet at the president of the United States. And in the process of sort of overvaluing, I think this broadcast function, they've undervalued sort of the right to ignore people, yeah. <laughs> right? To not hear right. what's getting shoved in my face. And I think that that touches on this point here of the sort of the advertising point. And again, it sounds like we're sort of winding around and nitpicking. And the point of the matter is you're not going to get a perfectly consistent solution that you can't sort of poke holes in. And so that's why stepping back to sort of the principle view is so helpful. Like, what is our core principle here? But the thing that I think where Facebook can do more and Twitter can do more and you and I can do more and basically all of us can do more. The productive thing of going through this exercise of building a principle stack is what I'm calling it, right? This is my top principles. My second principle is my third principle. Through the process of doing that, you will become intimately familiar with the trade-offs that you're making, right? Because you have to say, well, I'm going to put two over three, yeah. and that means I'm going to violate three sometimes. But that should lead to a, a next step, which is you don't just make the call and say, actually, free expression is most important. We're not going to censor politicians. It's like, okay, we've had all the thinking and debates about the implications of this. So how can we now sort of, while holding to our principle, sort of ameliorate the consequences of that without violating our principle? And I think this is a good example of it. Like Facebook's made the call, and I think it's the right call, that we are not going to be the judge and jury of political speech. Given that, what are all the other changes that we can make that don't violate that principle, but reduce sort of the potential bad effects of that? And I think so one change was increased transparency, which they've mostly done. I think should do even more. So that's a good change. Like what if for a politician, every ad had to actually be on their homepage, right? As opposed to being you have to dig through a bunch of links to find it. That's a potential change. You want to broadcast a message, that message is going to get broadcast. You know, it's going to be very trivial for people to go find it. I think they could push to even more transparency about that sort of stuff in time it to campaigns. But then number two, this, what we're talking about micro-target, you can make an argument that say, look, no, it's your ability to select. That's also free speech. Like, you know, we're not going to make any distinction between political ads and whatever it is. It's like, you know what? I get it. 
I get the potential for abuse here. We don't like lies any more than anyone else. At the end of the day, we don't want to be the decision maker, but we're going to maybe introduce a little more friction in the system, reduce sort of the efficiency. Something, another thing we talked about in a recent podcast. And I think that's a totally fine thing to do. It doesn't mean you don't believe in your principle. It means that you appreciate and understand that abiding by your principle requires trade-offs. And to be a good citizen means this is my line. I'm not going to cross that line because it's important to me, but I appreciate that me standing by this line means other bad stuff's going to happen. I get that. So I'm going to do everything I can to sort of like take care of that stuff. Yes. The framing you just had then is phenomenal. Again, pulling this out to a question of principles and sticking by them, particularly when they're inconvenient. And then if you have to stick by them, okay, what's the way of minimizing the harm? I think is a fantastic way of framing this whole thing. And if I think back to the arc of the last three podcasts and what you've written about most recently, really, this has been a debate about principles and how they stand up to the light of the real world and how we approach them. And there's another aspect to this, which is really interesting to me too, is sometimes when they get exposed to the situations of the real world, there might actually be cause for reordering the principles. And I think that's been a bit of a surprise for me over the past little while. So, for the longest period of time, I have been pro-free trade. Like, this is good for the world. Like, spread liberalism, spread economics, like everybody does better. And obviously there are important other things like environments and labor laws and so on, but like generally free trade is better for everybody. And it was a real shock for me and it took time for it to happen. But this question of China and how this is an instance where free trade may actually not be a good thing. And it's not because of the economic reasons. It's because there's a principle of liberalism versus authoritarianism for all the reasons we talked about in the podcast today that's super important to me. Like A, for the utilitarian argument, which I think you did an excellent job of making, but B, just because this is the type of society I want to live in. And the realization that this belief in free trade with an entity where we thought we were going to be exporting liberalism to them, political liberalism, and instead we've been importing authoritarianism, that caused me to like, okay, maybe my priorities haven't changed, but maybe the conflict between these two, where it was liberalism and free trade, which is more important, maybe I hadn't been forced to choose up until this point. And in the context of China, it all came home. So, I feel like that framing you just gave us then of like, what's the stack rank of the priorities, the principles that we have, and like, let's get clear about them before we get into the messiness of the individual issues. But maybe the messiness of the individual issues goes back and causes us to reevaluate the priorities. I think that's what's been so valuable for me over the past three episodes. I completely agree. And this gets at why the whole sort of gotcha approach is so toxic and is so wrong. Because by definition, if you are in a situation situation where principles two and principles three are in conflict and you choose principle two, you can roast me over the coals because of principle three. It's like, oh, you said you had this principle and you're violating it. It's like, I am like, I had to choose. Hmm. And it's frustrating to see this made into something like, I mean, you have this whole debate about Facebook's too big. Facebook's too powerful. And the exact same people coming out the next day saying Facebook should decide what's true and not true. And it's like, pathetic. It's like, can't you see? Can you listen to yourself? And it's like, what is your priority? It sounds like your top principle is that Facebook must always be wrong. Like, that's a pretty shitty top principle. Yes. Oh, it's difficult to listen to. And it's funny because I actually am very concerned about Facebook's size and Facebook's power. And I put that in this article and I, we've been talking about this for years and this is where I've really changed. And you've sort of led me a long way to be much more concerned about the power that Facebook holds. And you made this exact argument to me that, look, you are relying on sort of this incentive structure around Mark Zuckerberg that he's going to do the right thing. But the problem is that you made a structural argument. The power exists. Like what happens when the incentives change or when he doesn't care about the incentives anymore, then you're in big trouble. And you were exactly right. And I'm still not clear on exactly what we do about this. What's the best way to approach it? But I raise it as a fair thing. And you see it in the response to the article. People are saying, oh, look at you defending Facebook. And like, oh, you know, so sick of, you know, tech bros, you know, just yeah. whatever. It's like, no, I'm really concerned about Facebook. I am. 
I also, on my principal stack, free expression and having Mark Zuckerberg decide what's true or not true is higher on the stack. That's just the way it is. <laughs> and I'm with you. I appreciate the kind words. And like, yes, like I've been worried about them for a very long time. That concern does not suddenly extend to like jumping on board, roasting them because they did the right thing in this instance. I think he did the right thing. I think there's a little bit more they could do, particularly around the targeting, but he did the right thing. And you're right. There are a whole bunch of people out there who are just willing to jump on Facebook. It doesn't matter what they do. Like their opinion is the opposite. And yeah, I, I, I don't want to be one of them. Yeah. And the funny thing is, is like, there's no way this is worth the money to Facebook, right? The ironic thing is Facebook is the most principled actor in this particular sort of scenario. It was hilarious. Twitter's CFO was like, this was about principles, not money. We only made $3 million from Google advertising. Like, well, no, that means it wasn't. <laughs> like, it's not about principles until your principles are actually tested, right? Because right. for sure, one of the principles of all these companies is making money. And that's the point we got to talking about China and Apple and stuff like those lines. It's like, well, if you're a for-profit corporation that's just shareholders, where in your principal stack is making a profit? And it's pretty high up. That's what we're seeing. And I made this point to you, remember? I think, yes, I agree broadly that Apple is sort of violating its principles, but it's a little unfair. And there's the point. It's like, it's not that they're violating their principles. It's that for something to be your second order principle, like say privacy, it doesn't mean it's not a principle. Now, you could say it's not your top principle, but it doesn't mean it's not a principle. Is that sort of yes, like, remember of we were talking about the podcast? Yeah. This principle stack idea gets what I'm saying. It's unfair to say Apple's a hypocrite. They don't care about privacy. Well, you know, that's wrong. That's unfair. They do. What you can question is where in the principle stack does it lie? Yeah. And I mean, this is also a neat way of getting at the particular issue of China, which is just because a company has a principle stack and society's principle stack may not be the same especially a for-profit company's principal stack, despite all this business roundtable, I'm just going to call it for what I think it is, bullshit that's been published about the role of the corporation is more than just profit. And I'd love to get into this topic with you. I'm probably going to get a bunch of emails because I've not just today, touched not on- <laughs> Yeah, I've touched the live wire without explaining it. But it's like a for-profit company's principles, profit should be very high at the top. A society set of principles, profit of companies doesn't necessarily go at the top. It shouldn't be at the top, right? Right. And that's the concern with China is because they're exploiting the fact that the companies all want profit. And as a result, they will bend themselves to the priority stack of China as opposed to the priority stack of the societies in which they were founded. Like, By the way, I actually don't really have a moral objection to. Companies have to operate according to the laws where they are. Like, Now, you can question, should they even be in that given that's the case, right? Right. But once you're there, you're there. Like you got to follow the law. And I equally push back on people that will criticize. Like there was a thing a few years ago where Apple took down the VPN apps from their store and people are like, Apple should stand up for their principles. It's like, you know what is a good principle? Following the law. That's a good principle for a company. I don't want to live in a world where companies don't follow the law. You know what I mean? Like, and that's like a distinct principle. You step back. Well, should you be in a country with laws that you disagree with? That's sort of a different question. But once you're there, yeah, you got to follow the law. Right. And this strikes at like the how to deal with it because like it concerns me that they can peel companies or people or whatever off one by one. And especially when the authoritarianism, like one of the principles of operating in China is don't criticize China. Now we're in a bit of a pickle because it's like, how do you navigate all these different priority stacks, like where you were founded, your own ones, and this place that you're operating that happens to be a very big market and has a lot of sway over you because you're out there trying to make Money, reasonably so. Yeah, there's a little, so much we didn't get into here. We didn't get a, much into. I think we're both more pro the Facebook position than the Twitter position. I think there's yes one Twitter is, I think, going to find this very, very difficult to navigate. Yes. You made that point about what is a political ad and what isn't. That's going to be very challenging. And I also think there's an aspect of, you know, everything is a part of the political conversation. Like, actually, you know, the second estate can keep it. TV and newspapers, they can keep the area. We're going to stay over here. It's not an impulse that I agree with generally, right? But sadly, we're running out of time. But there's a point that I want to follow up with what you just made. Well, I think the China thing is productive and is a good thing to talk about as we said in the podcast. It's not necessarily about Apple. Apple's kind of stuck, right? It's about the next company. It's about thinking about, do we want to go to China knowing in the long run, if we are successful, what that is going to mean for the rest of our business? Mm. And I think this is a principle we can back up and make more broad is 
you need to define your principal stack. And this is probably a useful exercise to go through. And it's probably hard to do when you're not under pressure. It's very easy to say, you know, oh, our principles are X, Y, Z. And then like making money is like number five. It's like, be honest with yourself. <laughs> if you're running particularly a public for-profit company, money is probably number one. And the reason why that's important is because that's how you make a China decision, right? It's like, look, if we're honest with ourselves, we are going to do what's right by our shareholders, which means if we get in a situation where we have to sacrifice a huge amount of money to follow principle number two or three, we're not going to do it. It's like, well, maybe we shouldn't put ourselves in that position. You know, to go to China, there's big opportunity costs. Maybe that opportunity cost would be better spent somewhere else and building the business in other ways. Like the more you can think through this sort of stuff, think through your principal stack ahead of time and realize, oh, wait, this is my principle. I am going to violate this principle if this other principle comes into play. The more you can avoid situations where those principles do come into play in the first place. Yeah. It's hard because so much of this stuff is intuitive. And I feel like it's in the process of like coming down out of the ivory tower and getting out into the trenches. And that's where you start to find it. But in so much as you can define what's important beforehand, like it becomes much harder to do it when you're actually in the trenches. That's, that's totally true. No, you're totally right. It's very easy for me to say, sit down and find your principal stack. And one, no one's going to do that. And two, if they do it, everyone's going to lie to themselves <laughs> because it's like, there's nothing like money actually being on the line to reveal what it actually means to you, right? Right. So it's a very fair point. Yes. I guess the thing about it is though, when you get into these conversations, and I think that's what I appreciate about this versus the congressional testimony is like elevate it out of the gotcha and into a conversation about the principles. And like, then it becomes a much more productive conversation. That's right. And to take this full circle, you know, I think, I mean, not to be super cliche, but we just had a great productive conversation about what should be done. And I think arrived at hopefully something that was useful for you, for me, for people listening. And mm. that's because we have the freedom to do so. I mean, like, yeah. it's a good thing and it's a good thing worth protecting. And it's something that I think should be at the top of everyone's principal stack. Yeah. <laughs> You're not going to make the bald eagle joke? I mean... This is the foreign perspective. Anytime an American accent and the word freedom gets said too many times in close succession, I start imagining like the videos that you see when you arrive in the United States immigration. <laughs> and the contrast is very great, but you see the old eagle on the mountain. That's always one of the visages that you see. And it's like, ah, like my natural skepticism is coming up. Oh, but, but beautiful. This, oh my gosh. Stop. <laughs> Uh, yes, exactly. And uh, then you hit the very smiley, happy border guard. And you're like, good, yeah, that's right. Good feelings gone. <laughs> it really brings home the welcome to America experience. <laughs> totally. Very good. Well, uh, it's good to talk to you. Mm. It's been, yeah, quite a series here. Yeah. But yeah, I think we're practicing what we preach. Yes. And I've enjoyed it. I hope everyone listening has been too. Very good. I will talk to you soon. Sounds good, mate. See you. Right, bye-bye. 